Good morning, good morning. If you could turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, either on your phone, if you have a physical Bible. We do have Bibles in the back if you want to snag one. I think we have notes in the back as well if you'd like to get one of those. But we're going to be uh, focusing and kind of like launching in today's message from this passage. Um, if While you're turning there, uh, 1 Corinthians is written by a guy named Paul. And Paul is, uh, he wrote 40% of the New Testament. He was a guy who was, again, he was... Um, atheist, agnostic at best about Jesus and who he was until he flipped the script and became someone who's a follower of Jesus. And, and all of a sudden, he, he just gets un, turned on, unle- just unleashes what, everything that God is calling him to do on the world. And as he's doing that, he's running into people like the people in Corinth. Now, the people in Corinth were a part of a seriously messed up church. Um, they had serious issues in their marriages and their families and their workplace, sexual decisions, totally not like us, but lay, they were messed up. And so this was a church that, that he writes, and as he's writing this letter to the, to the church in Corinth, he's writing through pain and writing through the tears of like, oh, the passage that we're reading, chapter three, sits on the very first couple verses, which talks about how like, I, I wish I could talk to you like you're mature, but you're not. You're sarxy. And he uses the word sarks, um, which, is, which is, it's translated as worldly, but it basically means fleshly. Or basically, you like to shop hungry with your decisions. You go into all your decisions shopping hungry, and you end up making whatever decision your gut tells you, and, and, it, and it ends up blowing up your life and blowing up your relationships and being toxic for everyone around you. You're shopping hungry with your life. You're shooting from the hip with all of your decisions, and in so doing, messing everything up. There's a better way to build a life. There is a better way to build a life, which brings us right into the passage that we're reading right now. So if you could stand with me as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and following. We'll actually go all the way to 15. He says this, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. Each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. Just as we pause here for just a second, um, the first three materials that he's talking about building a life on, when when he says in verse 12, if anyone builds his foundation using gold, silver, and costly stones, those are all materials that were required within the building of the temple. That this, this temple in the Old Testament, this temple was so significant and we want it to last, we want it to be beautiful, we're going to put, we're going to invest this type of stuff into it. And then like he gets to the latter part of the, the, ver, the verse where he's talking about other materials people build their life on, which sounds like it's from the three little pigs. Wood, hay, or straw. So depending on what you build your life on, verse 13, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. Anytime you see in the Bible, the day, it's talking about the day of judgment, the day when God returns and judges. It's talked about that in the Old Testament and the New. When Jesus returns, their work, whatever they've built their life on and out of, will be shown to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Remember what we talked about last week, with the fire being a metaphor all throughout the Bible for this purification process of showcasing what's, what's legit and what's not. If you're having building materials, seeing what actually survives flame and what doesn't, he's describing the same thing as how we live our life, we build our life. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. 
This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. When we first started out this series on all things new, we're talking through the, the, the lens of what happens when Revelation 21.5 happens. When Jesus says, see, I've made all things new. Everything is restored. Everything is, 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 is made new. That, that, that's what he talks about. That's what he says, which impacts our future if you're in Christ, certainly. But it also impacts us in January of 2019. Frigid, frigid January of 2019. It impacts our day-to-day life. And what we talked about the very first week was this idea of hope. And that the, def- the running definition we're utilizing is this, that hope is a confident anticipation that good is coming. That when we as followers of Jesus are looking towards the future, we're not just thinking about some cloud city where we're just like ping-ponging around clouds. We're actually, we actually have an anticipation that's confident that good, good is coming. And a key component to the good that is coming in Scripture and what Paul was talking about in this passage has to do with rewards. But we don't talk about that often as Christians in 2019. I don't. I mean, it sounds, it sounds almost like we're, we're talking about the incentives of being obedient to God. Like the incentives of being in a tight relationship with Jesus. And that sounds icky. It feels weird to talk about that. But that's, that's perhaps a misstep. John Eldridge puts it this way. Who even talks about reward anymore? Who anticipates it, expects it? Honestly, I have never had one private conversation with any follower of Christ who spoke of their hope of being handsomely rewarded. This isn't good. It is a sign of our total bankruptcy. We don't talk about our desire to be handsomely rewarded or generously rewarded by God because we feel like we're going to sound like self-centered or egotistical or, or even like thinking like we're, we're taking our eye off the ball of what God is calling us to do. God's called us to obey him because he's God and we're not. Boom, that's it. That's why we follow him. He's God, we're not. We don't need any further incentive. We don't need any further conversation. And so as a pastor, and even as a Christian, when I've been thinking about my thoughts, I am not thinking about reward. Would I tell you that you should follow and obey God because you're going to get rewarded? No. But Jesus would. Look what he has to say. Matthew 5, he says, rejoice and be glad because great is your... Okay, now I'm going to do that several times, just warming you up. Let's try it. Rejoice and be glad because great is your... Reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He goes on. He says, watch out. Don't, let your, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your, good job on that one, reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do it as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth. They've received their reward and that they've received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. Now, that's all the verses we have in the Bible on eternal reward. No, it's not. You keep going. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For the Son of Man, another passage a couple chapters later. This is all in Matthew. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will each person according to what they have faith in. No, hold on. He will reward each person according to what they believe. Now, those things may be true, but that's not what Jesus is saying in this passage. Jesus says, you're going to be rewarded for what you have. Whoa. Hold on a sec. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Ephesians 2 says that. 
We're saved by grace through faith, and this is a free gift of God so no one can boast. We're not saved. We don't get into heaven. We don't have, get into eternity by doing good stuff. So how is it that I'm being judged by what I've done? The very next verse in Ephesians says, for you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You're not saved by good, good works, good deeds. You're not saved by what you've done. You're saved by what he's done for you. But you're rewarded by the decisions you make from that moment on. Paul says later on in Ephesians, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will, each one of you, for whatever good they do, whether they are a slave or free. He's saying, listen, you're in, in a first century context, man, we've got a messed up culture. We've got people that are owning other people or people at least are keeping people in indentured servitude. And, and, and sometimes it gives you the feeling like it doesn't matter what I do because I'm always going to stay at this class level. I'm always going to be treated like this. If I was rich or if I was powerful, if I had some type of privilege, then I could be someone who, who could experience the idea of I'm, I'm, I'm living rewarded, but I'm just me. And Paul's like, yeah. That's the reality. That's the reality we have to go through for however many decades we have on this planet. But it ain't forever. Whether you're slave or free, no matter what's happened in your past, whatever you do for God will be eternally rewarded. Eternally rewarded. The author of Hebrews even talks about our confidence in God as being something that God chooses to reward. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Even the person who's choosing to keep the faith in the midst of their doubt, in the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of like, I, don't, I feel like I've got so many doubts about God and I don't even know what to do with that. And, and God is saying, I get that. But for you who keep your confidence still, who choose, make the choice to doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. To say, I've got enough puzzle pieces to follow Jesus, and I'm going to trust him to put together the rest of the puzzle pieces. You will be richly rewarded. The author of Hebrews says later on in, in chapter 11, the great faith chapter of the book, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose, made a choice, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. I think this is so cool for so many reasons. The first one is this. Well, hold on a sec. For the sake of Christ, I thought Jesus showed up at the manger like way, way many years after that. What's Jesus doing in the Old Testament? The author of Hebrews points back to the Old Testament and says, you want to know who Moses was following? It was Jesus. On top of that, the fact that Moses was making this decision, I can have a life that is really self-absorbed and focused on something that I know is going to give me initial pleasure, initial validation, initial enjoyment. Or I could shelf that if God is calling me to do something else that is actually way more painful, difficult, costly, uncomfortable, frustrating, or tedious for the sake of Christ. Moses makes that decision. But why does he make that decision? Why does he make that decision? Look at the next verse. Because he was looking ahead to his what? You get to the end of the Bible. I'm talking like words away from the end of the canon that we have. In the book of Revelation, the last chapter, one of the last verses, and we have Jesus saying this. Look, 
I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. One of the last blasts of encouragement that we have in the Bible is God saying, I am coming back, and I'm coming back soon. And when I come back, I'm not just coming back and saying, woohoo, now we're going to make all things new. Woohoo, everything's transformed and changed. But I'm bringing with me something that I want you to know about that I don't want you to be ignorant of, and that's this. Everything that you chose to do to surrender to me on the life that you live right now, everything that you thought you couldn't give up, everything you thought you couldn't give over, everything, every moment that you struggled through with me, every one of those, I am bringing my reward. C.S. Lewis, the author of Chronicles of Narnia, said God unblushingly talks about how he wants to reward, reward his kids. Eldridge puts it this way, God seems to be of the opinion that no one should be expected to sustain the rigors of the Christian life without very robust and concrete hopes of being brazenly rewarded for it. Now, if that seems unique or new to you, you're not alone. And honestly, that thought process does not come into my everyday life most often. And that's a confession but it's standing in ignorance of what the Bible itself says. This is how we do. In the absence of that reality that I'm making my decisions off of how God will reward me, I choose to, I'm still going to want rewards, but I just reward myself. I don't know what you do to reward yourself. I deserve this. Some of you, it's like, it's, let's just say it's Starbucks. You're just like, this Frappuccino means so much. After the day I've had, this is the least I could do for myself. For this venti, I'm spending $18.95 with 1,500 calories and every one of them is delicious. And you're like, I need this. I deserve this. This is me time. This is self-love. I'm going to do... For you, it might not be a Frappuccino. It might be a Bud Light. Look, I need something to take the edge off today. You don't understand how messed up today. And so your ritual is, I get home and I have to self-reward. Your self-reward might be, I'm coming home from school. My teachers are insane. They give me way too much homework. And so I need at least two and a half hours of gaming just to, just to escape the reality of life. Or, or I, I need to pour myself into shopping because at least when I'm shopping, I, I feel like I've got an escape and my brain is not connected to all the difficulties. This is a way that I self-reward. Now, there's nothing wrong with any one of those things. But the reality is that when we make our daily decisions based off of, I'm going to put in hard work and then I'm going to self-reward myself. I will reward myself. And that's conditioned to what we're primarily thinking. We forget about the fact that God wants to eternally reward us. We, and some people are even are a little bit more wise in the whole thing. And they say, well, look, okay, hold on a second. I'm a Christian. And so I want to do the right thing because the right thing is a good thing way to live life. If I invest in my marriage in a good way, I'm going to have a better marriage. If I'm wise with my money, um, I can actually set myself up so that in my retirement years, I'll, I'll, have, I'll be taken care of financially, or my kids will be able to be taken care of financially. Or, or I'm going I'm to try to operate at work in an honest way so I don't get fired. And if I operate in an honest way and I don't get fired, well, then I'll have a job. And if I have a job, I can, I can you know, bring home the bacon. I can make, I can make ends meet. And all, nothing's, all that's good. But that you go from self-reward to temp-reward. All of it is built and based on having a good life now, which is not bad, unless that's all that you're realizing, it's all you're thinking about, and you're totally divorcing yourself from what Scripture says is even greater. What if we lived in such a way 
that every one of our decisions, we also had flash over our mind. Is this something that brings God glory or is holding on to God's strength? Is this something that I actually can step into and that, that God says he will reward? Because what this does is it takes the person who's like in a relationship and you're, as a Christian, you're in this relationship and everything's going good. I mean, it's going in all the right directions. And you're like, man, I'm feeling like things are going in a really solid direction. But I also realize that the closer we're getting, um, the closer we're getting. And I, I know that the, like, there's some super prudish people um, that talk about the Bible saying like this whole idea of sex and, and our, that is something that should be had after marriage. That's adorable. But that's not 2019. And 2019 is often, you know, if you're in love with a person or, or you're, you're, you have a really strong connection, then that's a good warranting reason. And that's, that's our reality. I mean, that, honestly. But for a Christian, there's, a, there's also this reality of saying, what if I said everything inside of me is driving to say this is the best way to seal the deal. This is the best way for us to get closer. And yet I say that God has this weird, seemingly backwards perspective that I'll only give my body to someone. I'll only pledge my body to someone after I've pledged my life to them. That if I pledge my life to them, then I pledge my body to them, all of a sudden there's something that seems right. I'm not on this, this perpetual job interview in a relationship hoping that I'm still satisfying them or, or deluded by the idea of like, I'm gonna be, um, this is the best way to find out if we're like, like compatible. Basically, it, it, as a Christian, it's like saying, okay, I, I totally understand all those rationale. They make sense to me, but I'm choosing to do something totally counter what I feel something that's totally counter the natural drive within me and say, yeah, I don't get it, but I'm just going to trust God on this one. Do you think God's going to not reward that person for that decision eternally? Do you think any amount of a relationship on this earth is, can, can hold a match to that? Or the person who's struggling in their loneliness, and honestly, they've been lonely for so long and they just want to give up hope. They just want to end it all because honestly, whether they're, whether they're 18 or they're 88 years old, the loneliness is oppressive and they feel like everyone has left them and everyone has forgotten them and they've been betrayed by everyone and they're all alone or they're all alone in this marriage or they're all alone in this world and they want to just give up hope. But all of a sudden they have this nagging reality as a follower of Jesus, I'm not alone. And even though I'm crying, even though I'm broken, I'm choosing, I'm making the choice to hold on to him, hold on to my faith that I am not alone and that he is with me. Do you think God's gonna fail to reward that person? The person that chooses to, to volunteer, you know, in, in some type of ministry, like, oh, seriously, I don't have time for these kids, but they choose to do it anyway. Do you think that God's gonna turn his head and say, yeah, that, well, that's good, but those are just third graders. Try junior high someday. No, God's not gonna say that. You think that God, God, God is actually someone who actually pours in and he brazenly, unblushingly desires gladly to reward his kids. But what happens if you've made a mistake? Like what happens if you've like, you've failed God or you've failed other people and you go like, yeah, but look, we've already crossed lines. I've already crossed lines. I feel like my fate is, I'm, this is the rut that I'm in. I can't get out of this. What happens if you need a second chance after you've done the unthinkable? Listen to Dave and Jen. 
Christ in recovery from anxiety, depression, and sexual addiction. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus, and I struggle with codependency, anxiety, and depression, and my name is Jen. So I grew up in a very unhealthy home. My identity was super ambiguous from the start. I even had a false name on my birth certificate so that my mother's identity wouldn't be discovered because she'd kidnapped her two older children from their father. It wasn't until I was three that she would negotiate their return in exchange for no charges being filed. And when it was just my mom and I, she obviously couldn't bring her six-year-old to drink and gamble with her, so I'd be frequently left in very unsafe situations. I'd wait hours and sometimes even overnight for her to come back. I'd be alone in the car while she was inside, left with unsafe babysitters, or even dropped off in abandoned drug houses. My dad still had a busy afternoon shift schedule, so for a few years the two of us lived in an apartment with opposite schedules. I'd be at school while he slept, and then he'd be at work while I slept. He did everything he could to provide for me, and was so faithful to bring me to church and to teach me to follow Christ. My home life growing up was dramatically different from David's. It was perfect, <laughs> except that it wasn't. I never saw my parents argue. As the oldest, I had a lot of responsibility to care for the younger kids and ended up really taking over a lot of the nurturing and even the discipline of my younger siblings. This started the roots of control in my life, but I didn't see it that way at the time. I saw it as being a good Christian girl with a servant's heart. So I fell in love with Jenny, obviously, from the moment I laid eyes on her my freshman year in high school. And a little over a year, a year later, we started dating. She was my dream girl in every way possible. And for once in my life, I finally felt like I overachieved. But in my quest to convince people that I was something special, I decided to throw myself into my work and achieved rapid achievement in my early 20s. My success came at a price though. Long hours at the office meant less time at home with Jenny and our growing family. It also meant that my constant desire for approval caused me to begin struggling with chronic anxiety, GI problems, panic attacks, and eventually depression. When I was most broken, I knew that God was my only hope. Then in my 30s, I focused on finishing my bachelor's degree in Christian ministry. Around that same time, I began an unhealthy relationship with a female coworker. I make no excuses. I was aware of the choices I was making, and for some reason, I seemed not to care. But within days, the heartbreak of violating Jenny's trust and the angst of hidden sin caught up with me, and I confessed everything to her. I so feared that I would lose her forever. As our young family grew, I was becoming more and more isolated. David's obsession with being the perfect provider left him with less and less time for the kids and for me. I couldn't seem to break through his walls, no matter what I tried. I knew that he wasn't happy, and I assumed that it would be any day now that he would leave us. It was during this time that I allowed myself to become emotionally involved with my boss at work. It only lasted for a couple weeks before I broke it off and I quit that job. So several years later, I'm still not satisfied with myself. I decided to go back to school again. I graduated with an MBA from Liberty University in May of 2013. My lifelong dream was a political career. So talk about being the ultimate narcissist. I began a campaign to run for county board. The adrenaline of speaking in front of people and having those people clap and cheer in approval was so addicting. And I was soon voted in as vice chairman of the county board, even though I was the rookie in the room. To be clear, I now had an overinflated ego, and I thought I was pretty special. It was shortly thereafter that I reached out to an old friend on Facebook, a female friend. 
The online-only relationship escalated quickly into flirting again, and then outright inappropriate comments, and then a, a visit where the relationship turned physical. During my time in office, another woman was particularly bold in expressing interest in me, and I did very little to discourage her. Conversations with her soon diverged into over flirting. It again turned physical and remained that way off and on for several months, as I would break things off with her only to have things start up again. Eventually it crossed the line physically, and after that happened, I completely panicked and broke things off permanently. It wasn't until several months later that I had the worst panic attack of my life and was rushed to the ER by ambulance. I literally thought I was dying. In the aftermath and in the healing, I fell into the deepest depression of my life. So this led me to confess the two affairs to Jenny. It was definitely the hardest thing I had ever done in my life. How was I going to explain to the love of my life that I'd broken our covenant before God? And how could I admit to my God that I'd failed him yet again? I was afraid to trust that this time would be different. I wanted wholeness and a healed marriage, but I also felt foolish for hoping that we could find our way back. I knew that the only way it would work was to address those deep roots and that it needed to happen quickly. I'll be honest, at this point I was feeling really lost. I had so many emotions swirling through my head that I couldn't really grab onto one of them at a time. God had heard my cries of intercession for David. He had come through and reached him. Could I feel thankful for that? My husband had finally surrendered himself to the Lord. Could I be angry at him? So just after that, it was Ruth and Pastor Carlos that recommended a weekend intensive. And a few days later, I heard a commercial on the radio for the ravines in Indiana. God pulled together every single detail, including financial, and I was able to schedule our weekend trip. During the drive to our ravines in Indiana, I wanted to turn back dozens of times, but I knew that God was not in that fear that was trying to keep me away from our healing. So I persevered and pushed through. We finally arrived and God's presence was so apparent from the moment we walked in the door. You could feel the hope and love immediately. During our counseling sessions, our counselor, Matt, helped me identify walls that I'd built up to keep Jenny out. We uncovered some truths about my early childhood that had left deep scars, abandonment, shame, guilt, worthlessness. Our counselor helped me to see Jenny as she was and to embrace her as the safe person that she is. If she was going to abandon me, she certainly would have done so by now. I started to see the truth of what we have together, and my walls finally came down and faithfully attending our weekly meetings at Celebrate Recovery, I began to learn that I needed to stop protecting David from his anxiety and stop trying to manipulate the spiritual and emotional growth of my family members and stop trying to cover up the effects of David's anxiety as we had missed family events or canceled travel plans. I had to break my own habits of being selective in what and how much I would share with David, keeping all our family's relational burdens onto myself. If we were going to build a real relationship this time, I had to make some changes too. God provided just the right ministries with just the right people for each stage of my recovery for that to happen. He's so loving that way. David signed us up for the re-engage class at Minooka Bible. We were well into our restoration at that point, but the tools that we learned in re-engage have been crucial for us. Rebuilding communication came slowly as I started to get more and more comfortable being vulnerable with David. 
God healed us from the inside out and continues to bless our marriage. Because God forgives us, we can forgive each other. Why don't we hear those stories more often? Why don't we hear those stories more often at church? I think a big part is we've tagged any one of our difficulties or struggles or our pain or even our, our, our deepest wounds that we've caused others or others have caused us as not safe for church because we have this mirage that God is someone who only accepts the ones who have got their lives together, who've perfectly put it back together, that they've looked at the brokenness of their own lives and were able to, bit by bit, put the pieces together and heal themselves so efficiently that they never needed God in the first place. That's why we need those stories. We need those stories because we need stories of the reality that all of us make awful decisions when our primary motivation is self-reward or even temporal reward with good motivations with bad endings and scrubbing ourselves clean of the fact that we have a God who wants to gladly reward us. That when we step into the brokenness of our life and we make those decisions, even the costly ones, especially the costly ones, we see his hand in reward. Eldridge puts it this way, if there is no cost to our Christian faith, how then shall we be rewarded? And may I point out that we too would love to receive a hero's welcome. It helps to keep in mind that, a val- that valiant deeds require desperate times. The desperate times are all around us, friends, now for the valiant deeds. As Christians, we have the opportunity to step into the reality that we are building something with this life. Your decisions are not arbitrary. They're not pointless. If you're a teenager and all of a sudden you have all of these amazing, amazing amount of this newfound independence and you're enjoying the fact that the accountability level is going down, all of us who've gone through our teenage years, we totally get that. You're now in a position where you're making decisions that seem like they don't matter, but they seem fun. The truth is, is that they matter greatly. If you're a Christian, If you're not a Christian, you're right. Whatever you want to do is whatever you want to do. You have only a certain amount of years on this planet and make the most of it. But if you're a Christian, you have far more years than that. Are you living in such a way that the decisions that you're making are building something? Paul's words at the beginning of the passage we started out with is build, but each one should build with care. That means that we enter into the reality of our relationships, whether you're a kid, a parent, a friend, and we build those with care realizing that we're not building into something that's just temporary. Each one of our decisions is long-lasting. We engage tragedy with care, realizing that, you know what? I'm serving a good God and awful has happened. Tragedy has happened. But how I go through this tragedy matters. I can build through the anxiety of this with care. When we're placed in in position to make the decision that maybe some of you might be on the brink of making right now, There's a decision that you've got that you know you've been sitting on, you've been flirting with the decision and you're close to making it and it's gonna go one way or the other. Go beyond the self-reward. Go beyond the temporal reward. 
Go with the eternal reward, the reality that one day you're going, if you're in Christ, you will see Jesus face to face. There was this guy um, who imagined what it would be like to see Jesus face to face. And he talked about how, how that, that world, it, it would be like almost like, like, a, like a knight coming off of the battlefield after fighting and going through the, the battle of, a, of life, fighting right and left, feeling like he's battling the, the spiritual world all over the place. He imagined what it would be like when he finally gets to see Jesus face to face. And he wrote it throughout his imagination this way. He says, I want to finish well. I want to return as a hero, a warrior worthy of the kingdom. I had this vision. I don't know if it was an actual vision or just my heart's expression. I saw myself, sword at my side, shield slung over my back, making my way up the main street of the city. I wore the battle gear of war, soiled by long years at the front. People lined both sides of the street to welcome me. The great cloud of witnesses, I guess. I recognized hundreds of faces, faces of those whose freedom I fought for. Their smiles and tears filled my heart with profound joy as I made my way up the street towards Jesus and our Father. My friends and fellow warriors stepped into the street with me, and we moved forward as a band. I saw angels there, maybe angels who fought for us and with us, walking alongside. I saw flower petals on the pavement. I saw banners flapping in the breeze. We watched. We reached the throne, and we all knelt. Jesus came forward and took me by the shoulders. And he kissed me on my forehead. And we embraced deeply, freely, like I always knew we would. Then my father stepped forward. And with his hand on my shoulder said, well done, my son. Very well done, indeed. Welcome home. And as we embraced, a great cheer went up from the crowd. How you envision your future will impact your present more than anything else. If you're a follower of Jesus, the reality that you will be rewarded for decisions in following Christ, that, that is, there are eternal rewards, speaks into our very moment. The reality that he is someone who promises to make all things new and that he promises to gladly reward us. Now you might be someone who really struggles because you don't have examples of that. In, in your world and in my world, we have tons of examples of people who say, I do what I wanna do. I do what makes sense for me. I do what, what serves my interests best. That makes sense, that seems wise. I don't, have any, I don't have any examples of someone I know, a parent, a friend. No, I don't have examples of someone who says, I wanna do this, but I'm choosing instead to go God's way and do what he wants to do simply because he's God and because of the fact he chooses to reward me. I wish I had an example. Well, that's why we come to, back to the Lord's table. Because the Lord's table is actually the picture of Jesus. It's the, 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 Lord, it's the, the Passover supper he had with his disciples before he was betrayed, before he was crucified on the cross. It, it was the, the, the supper that we remember what he did to this day. Because it was in the garden that Jesus, Jesus talks with the Father. God the Son talking with God the Father saying, if there's any way to avoid what, we're about to, what I'm about to experience, if there's any way to avoid the pain and the cost of the cross, let's go that way.
And in the garden, we see a picture of the fact that God himself knows what it's like to not get his prayers answered. Jesus finishes up his prayer to the Father by saying, if there's any other way, let's do that. But not my will, your will be done. Communion reminds us of the example you and I have if you're in Christ. The example, the fact that God gave us his body and his blood at his cost, not thinking of the momentary feeling, but the eternal reward, the reward of bringing you and me home to him. If you're a follower of Jesus, whether this is your church or not, this table's open to you. And the way that we do this at our church is simply this. We exit our rows on the left-hand side. We go to a table that's closest to us. We go around both sides. We get the bread and the cup and we bring it back to our seats and we spend time reflecting. God, how have I been choosing to build my kingdom with myself rewarding myself and forgetting about the rewards you've called me into? Directly stemming from obediently following you and remembering the fact that he is the one at his own cost who wiped away our sin. So right now, if you could go to the table that's closest to you, get the elements, bring them back to your seats. And after a few moments, we'll take those together.